0: The GTX 1660 Ti review and rumors of additional 1600 series GPUs coming soon, new high performance RGB memory from Corsair, a high end Z390 motherboard from Asus, a look at the absurd new USB 3.2 specification, and of course the picks of the week, all that and more coming up on this week's episode of the PC Perspective Podcast.
1: Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 534, being recorded on February 27, 2019. I am Sebastian Peek. I'm Jeremy Hellstrom. I'm Josh Wallrath.
0: And I'm Jim Tannis.
1: And uh, if you found us by mistake, this is the official podcast of PC Perspective. PCPro.com on the interwebs. And we need to get right into it because we have another uh, barn buster of a week. We had, I think, six reviews go up on the site this week as we continue to plow through reviews. And uh the first one is, of course, the headliner of the week. Uh, naturally, it, it seems to always follow a podcast that a big release comes out that we can't talk about. So while uh, last week I was uh finishing up my GTX 1660 Ti review, we actually couldn't talk about any anything no performance numbers no specs even though the thing was leaked pretty much you know everywhere its yeah <laughs> it's it seems like that's been the story lately like we're we're already hearing about the next one before i can even publish this one and uh i'm going to kind of pick everybody's brain here about this i know what i think about this card i benchmarked it for a week what does everybody else think about the gtx 1660ti and where it sits in the product stack. Is this really the replacement for the 1060? Is the performance level versus a a GTX 1070, uh, which, you know, it's pretty much the same, but with less memory? Is that an issue at this performance level, at this price level? Discuss.
2: You know, uh, Sebastian, upon the advice of my lawyer, I have no comment at this time. Hmm. Okay, do you really want
3: to know? Jack, Jack, the,
2: the embargo is lifted. It's, it's fine. You can talk about it now. Okay, fine. Um, you know, there are some interesting things here. I mean, many people have been asking what would a chip be like if it just took the shader the cores and, and all the non RTX and non tensor core and non machine learning stuff out? And what would you get? And well, we've been answered. This is exactly what you get. It's a smaller chip. It's very efficient. It runs at high clock speeds. It's what, about in between the 1070 and 1070 Ti overall in terms of performance?
1: Yeah, it it depends on the game. Uh, it, there were certain instances where it was a little bit below a 1070, depending on resolution, and then it would be between the 1070 and 1070 Ti quite a bit. Not like the rtx 2060 which pretty much was identical to a 1070 ti on average so this is you know that one half step below whereas the the rtx 2060 kind of bridged the gap between the gtx 1070 and the 1080
2: yeah but this is what retails at 279 correct
1: right yeah retail cards and i've That's for, like, the stock. There is no reference Founders Edition for this one, unlike what we saw with the 2060. So it's all partner boards. This was an add-in board launch. But most of the cards I'm seeing at retail have some sort of overclock. So the numbers you're seeing here are from one of those, like, lightly overclocked cards. Most of the numbers, all the stock numbers in the review were from a MSI Gaming X card, which had a higher boost clock than what NVIDIA lists as stock for this new gpu this is uh we'll get into that a little bit because this is not a cut down version of the tu 106 we saw on the rtx 2060 it's an all-new gpu that has not have any of the rtx stuff in hardware there's nothing fused off or disabled but yeah i mean if you're watching the video or kind of scrolling through Results and I tested this at 1080p and at uh, 2560 by 1440. I didn't get into any uh, 4K testing because I think with a GPU like this, you know, you'd have to use lower quality settings and it's not
2: really what this is intended for. And then it's got six gigs of memory and a 192 bit bus. Yeah. I mean, is it GDDR5 that- still five or still- GDDR6?
3: Six. Six. Hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's still. Well- Cheaper than a 1060 at launch, is the part that I
1: just love about it. Yeah, yeah. The six gigabyte version of the 1060 was 299. I forgot about that because it was only the yeah. the 249 price was just for the three gig model.
3: Yeah, which was you know half the card it used to be. Yeah, at best. So, uh,
1: some quick notes about the review, uh, which you know will the the core itself is a is called TU116 which Nvidia said they built from the ground up to be basically a GPX or GTX GPU this is not doesn't have any of the uh tensor cores RT cores this is simply a Turing gaming GPU and th- what they were able to do with that was have a massive reduction in die size they went from 445 millimeters squared with the RTX 2060 all the way down to, I believe it's 284 millimeters squared with this, which obviously uh, with fewer uh, CUDA cores, this is also the full version of this new TU 116. So this is not a cut down version. This is the biggest version we're going to see for this GPU according to NVIDIA and it is 1536 CUDA cores, the 2060 was 1920 CUDA cores but looking all the way back to the GTX 1080 that was uh 1280 so it's it's in between those two as far as the actual core count uh both the 1060 2060 and 1660ti all have 48 rops this does have fewer texture units than the 2060 96 versus 120 but that memory that it's still 6 gigabytes of the same GDDR6 and in fact, the only difference because they have they both have 198 or 192 bit interface. The difference is that the memory in this 1660 Ti is clocked lower. Uh, does anybody is anybody with me in thinking that that might just have been a choice to help with product segmentation? Because I don't think any of the reviewers out there who tried had any trouble making this run at exactly the same 14 gigabit-per-second speed as the RTX 2060.
2: Yeah, it, it certainly sounds like segmentation, and also maybe you get a little bit less spec memory to go along with it, uh, stuff that, you know, maybe not your A cores, but your B cores or whatever you want to call it, stuff that may not clock as high, but it kind of does, and, you know, for, for GPU-type applications and in, in 3D games it's not going to matter if you get a memory error now and there, it's not going to crash anything. You're going to get, you know, just a minute bit of, of strange pixel behavior, but that's about the extent of it. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, totally segmentation, man. I had
1: zero issues just bumping it up. Plus 1000. I was using, uh, EVGA's precision X, um, plus 1000, get it back up to the same 14 gigabit per second. Rock, You know, stable, no issues at all in any of the tests, no graphical artifacts or corruption or anything like that. So it seems like that's kind of what changed this card for me was after testing it, I'm like, yeah, okay, it's about where the GTX 1070 is, which kind of makes sense based on the specs and the clock speeds and where the RTX 2060 is, which is basically a 1070 Ti level performer. And then when you overclock this card, that's what was interesting because NVIDIA specifically called out, uh, the potential, the overclocking potential of this card They said it was going to be a great overclocker and they didn't call out any specific numbers, but I had no trouble pushing this one for, uh, not to the level of a 2060, but significantly above stock performance levels, certainly. And it, it varied by game, but, it it was kind of like bridging the gap between that next card. Like it, it goes to like the 1660 TI plus or RTX 2060 minus level. Like it's never tying a 2060. I think if you get the right card and overclock the memory and the core enough, you could make a 2060 perform identically to a stock 2070. uh, Depending on the application, I was able to do it only in one when I was overclocking the 2060 that I have but this card certainly benefits from additional memory bandwidth and it certainly benefits from any kind of core boost you can give. I did the OC scanner on um one of the cards I think I got like a plus 90. I was able to push it to like plus 120 no problem, plus 135 on the core was the highest overclock I got that that translates into sustained boost clocks during my benchmarks of like 2040 megahertz to 2070 megahertz. Basically the same thing I was seeing with RTX, uh, 2060. So I don't know if it's a li- like a limitation of this architecture or what they definitely go up to two gigahertz. You can sustain them at two gigahertz. Um, I didn't play with any undervolting or anything like that, but, uh, t- you know, a little bit more aggressive fan profile. And these things would run at two gigahertz consistently in games. So you can, you can certainly get some free performance with a, a very easy overclock. Even if you just use the OC scanner tool uh, built into like EVGA's application or MSI's afterburner.
2: Huh. No exotic cooling yeah. needed. So did you just uh, do some overclocking with the memory or did you do both of them together the core and memory?
1: Both together. I tried memory first just to satisfy my curiosity about stability and whether it could really run at like its full 14 gigabit per second speed especially because I was dealing with uh Micron memory. I had I I was looking at the the display uh what was the uh the GPU-Z and right away I'm thinking, you know, this is a, this is micron memory. It's probably the same stuff. And it, it clocked the same. Anyway, uh the test cards that I had, uh the, the big difference in your potential with this is going to be what the manufacturer has limited the card uh to do. So like the if I can speak. Uh the power limits of these cards, the the, the little card I have right here, which if it will go into focus, it's deceptively small. This is one of those little like kind of mini ITX size cards, like 170, 75 millimeters. But this is, this is a thick card. This is thick. a triple, triple double wide. Look at this triple slot for a small. One of the card. connectors, a DVI. Yep. DVI HDMI PlayPort.
2: That's wild and wacky it just doesn't work for me anymore. Yeah. Nope. I guess that they're aiming this for the single monitor type individual and, you know, that's fine, but you know, there's some productivity apps and stuff, but I guess if you got to, you know, try to get three monitors that, you know, one's HDMI, one's DVI and one's display port. That's kind of a pain in the tookish. Hey, Josh, look at this one. This is the MSI gaming X. Oh, see, that's better. Three
3: display, yeah, three port, display and ports HDMI. and HDMI.
2: That's, that's much
1: better. And yeah. actually, I don't see it on this one. I remember in our uh, briefing about this, it will be up to the partner, but they can add a USB
3: Type C as well. Will it actually doesn't they the include VR a controller?
1: Link? What was that? Go and ahead, Jeremy. Some...
3: Yeah, I was going to say you can add the USB port, but is it actually going to actually support VR Link? I believe so. I'll have to look at my
1: notes again, but I thought that was something that could be enabled that wasn't, like, blocked, but was up to the AIB. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll go back to my notes on that one. But, yeah, like, the it, it seems that not just in display connectivity, but in power limit, the, the, there's a lot of choices that can be made by these partners. And, you know, they can set the boost clock speeds. The power limit on this little card, well, the, the little big card, is 100 percent you and so there's not a whole lot of headroom for overclocking i was still able to set the same overclock it's just it didn't sustain it under load i was at around the 1985 megahertz range under load with the small car which is still fine 1770 is the stock like the rated boost clock but that's very dependent on thermals and a power power limit and the msi has a very modest uh, 107%. So we're going to see cards with a much higher power limit and those could be the ones that could potentially get up into that RTX 2060 range. I just haven't done it yet. So any other thoughts on the uh, 1660 Ti? Is this I don't know if we we talked about it is do you think that 279.99 is a good price for this? Is it too expensive still? Can we legitimately call this a 1060
2: success it's significantly faster than the rx 590 right and that one's what 10 bucks cheaper in retail well for now yeah but But i don't I i don't i don't know if the um the rx 590 is gonna be dropping down significantly in price or it just is gonna dry up i mean there's a ton of rx 570s and 580s and eBaying 470s and 480s. And I mean, those are great cards for the price and, and for 1080p gaming. But this is, you know, this is a significant jump up in performance. It's just unfortunate that they only have 6 gigs of memory. I mean, that's not going to hold you back in a lot of applications. Like I think Far Cry 5, I was looking at some of the usage there. And it's in between 4 and 5 gigabytes of, of space that you use of video memory. And that's still a relatively recent title. Some of the newer ones. What is it? Uh, what was the one that really ate up the memory? Well, I'm thinking uh, it was Division Rise 2, of Division Two Tomb Raider. Uh, D- Division oh. Two
0: is, is supposed to be the recommended spec. I think is eight gigabytes, right? For like the best experience. Isn't it high like
2: that? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't play the the demo on that one. Not the demo, but the beta. Um, I'm just kind of trying to remember. So what some other people have tested to to kind of look at where where that was I know Scott Watson of AMD uh did a, a thing about you know hey this this Radeon 7 16 gigs is actually useful in these in these scenarios but I'm kind of wondering what what uh just kind of day to day type stuff that somebody who wants to get it is like the division 2 and um you know other cutting edge titles uh what uh, Anthem just came out I think that uses quite to... a bit of
3: memory Trying to figure out how much Exodus uses as well, because Metro. Yeah, I upgraded my kid from a, uh, from
2: a from uh, a R nine two ninety four gig to an RX five eighty eight gig, and it was a significantly smoother experience with more memory. And even though those in terms those two cards in terms of performance are, are really really close together.
1: One thing I'll add is that you, you were talking about like uh, what Scott at AMD had said about the Radeon 7 and, and utilizing some of that massive 16-gigabyte uh, frame buffer they have. Uh, his particular use case was, I believe, using VSR, so the virtual super resolution. NVIDIA has DSR. You could, in theory, enable DSR in the NVIDIA driver with this card, go into the game, uh, pick a resolution that's above your monitor's resolution, have it render at that resolution then downscale at the display output and effectively get, like, I direct me if I'm wrong, that's basically a full-screen anti-aliasing effect as it downsamples, right?
0: Yeah, that's my understanding of it. And the the reality, too, though, is when you're doing that, if you have to do that to take advantage of the extra memory, you're going to hit, at least on modern games, you're going to hit a performance level on the on the card's processor before you reach the memory limit. I mean, there are games, like in Josh Ed, if you're coming from a 2- or 4-gig card, sure, but I think it's 6 gigabytes. If you're going to hit games, modern games, if you're going to hit that memory limit, you're going to be at a resolution where the performance isn't going to be acceptable anyway, either natively scaling to 4K or higher or doing some sort of dynamic uh, super super sampling or whatever. So uh i mean i always i don't i I want always want the industry to be pushing forward i don't want there to be limits but i i think that because you know look look at looking at the way the amd had to demonstrate it you're talking about use cases that are going to be on the fringe of what the vast majority of gamers are going to be encountering at least today maybe not a year from now or whatever comes next but
1: yeah and the problem with that too was uh sorry jeremy what was that no, it's Josh, but go ahead. No, oh, I should probably be looking at the display so I know who's talking. But yeah, what I was going to say is Scott's uh, use case. If you look at the frame time chart, and you can go back to the Radeon 7 review, I, I have that in there. Uh, I'm pretty sure, even though there's no uh, Y axis listed there, that you're talking about a 20 millisecond ish uh, average frame time. When I was playing around with the virtual super resolution stuff, the frame rates were very low. So yeah, I was able to push the memory way up over eight, get to like 10, 11 by using very high virtual resolutions, like four and five K actually I was doing five K. I even tried eight K, but that was insane. I was at like one and a half frames per second at that point, but (laughs) very, very low frame rates when you start messing around with that stuff at higher detail settings, which is kind of what you have to do to use 10 gigabytes of memory in these games. So it like Far Cry 5, even with the HD texture pack uh, installed and enabled, you're still only just over six gigabytes at 4k. It was like just, it was under seven, but if you're gaming on a mid-range GPU, a 1660 Ti to me is like a 1440 and ideally a 1080, uh, you know, monitor kind of card. So I I personally don't think it's an issue only because I've been benchmarking for like the last two months straight and nothing that I benchmark by design essentially goes above six gigabytes because I want a level playing field for all the cards you know you'd, you'd hammer on a card that only has 6 gigabytes of memory if you intentionally chose like an ultra 4K uh benchmark that needed more than 6 gigabytes of memory but at the same time we don't really test single GPUs at 4K ultra with HD textures in the industry right now that's limited to the very high end cards and I'm not you know trying to compare a mid-range card to like a, a RTX 2080 Ti or something. So, and like the Radeon 7 does not appear in the benchmark charts, if you don't notice, because I'm like, you know what, $500, let's make that the cutoff because at some point, it just becomes academic to say, well, this $1,000 or $1,200 card can do so much more than this $279 card can. So,
2: like, and this doesn't get... support SLI, does it? Uh, no,
1: I don't believe so. No, no, it does not. In fact, that, that nope. came up in the Q&A and... The answer was a little interesting. It was SLI has always been for the high end. That's where like the enthusiast tries to get the absolute most out of their system by pairing up two high end cards, which I thought was
3: probably really? the opposite yeah. <laughs> The opposite of correct.
1: Yeah, isn't it? You buy an inexpensive <laughs> GPU, and then when you can afford another one, you pair them up, and you can get the same performance of the
3: really expensive GPU? When I go out and buy a Titan, I always buy two. Like, really? No.
0: Well, I think that so. the, there's a segment of the market that's chasing the, you know, 3 d Mark leaderboards and stuff, that obviously that's the case, and due to the decline, the rather abrupt decline in quality of SLI experiences, I think that's probably more today where you're going to see it because SLI is so inconsistent these days. There are so many games where not only does it scale nowhere near one-to-one in terms of adding that second card, but in some cases you have a performance decrease or you introduce micro stuttering or other issues. So, Mm -hmm. because I used to run SLI setups and there was a, a period five or six years ago where you could make a really strong argument for it, you know, adding that second card down the road. But today there's so few titles where it really makes sense to do that. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it was Ryan who said for years now, always buy the best single card you can. You know, if you have to add SLI down the road, that's your fallback, but you should set out to put as much money into a single high performance card up front, Cause that's where you're always going to have the best experience.
2: And you know what really sucks about SLI? Now that we're going on a segue, is that so? I had bought the HD SLI link, you know, the the higher end one that you could use on the ten seventies, ten eighties, and now of course those are obsolete with the NVLink
3: based. Have you yelled at Jacob it's like, yet? Gosh, what? Have I yelled Have at Jacob? Yelled at Jacob about yeah? No. Wasn't it the EVGA one that you bought? I think so, bridge. but why would yeah. I yell
2: at him? It's Nvidia who's designing no. these GPUs. Fair enough. He's just selling them.
0: Well, the, the the high bandwidth SLI link still works for your Pascal cards. I mean, you're not going to the NV Link is a
2: new thing. No, on, but on I, I bought a forty dollar link for you know Pascal. I'm thinking, hey, maybe when twenty seventies or whatever they're going to be called come out one day, I can I can just move that over there. Nope. Oh, well, planned op- planned no obsolescence. But...
4: <sighs> it's they,
1: like they, intel they,
4: and sockets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they need they need to talk to the USB IF about that to, oh, to come God, up with a standard that we can all agree on.
2: All right. SLI well, two
3: by four point eighteen. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So anyway, final closing thoughts on the on, on the sixteen sixty T I. Breath of fresh air, or is it just kind of a mediocre thing in the middle of the
3: pack of cards? It's nice to have a new GPU sitting at three hundred bucks.
1: Yeah. I, and under. Yeah. I think that it's it's another one of those launches where you look at the price, you look at the performance, and it's not exciting to say, this is a, kind of a logical price for this performance level. It's, a, it's up to 50% faster than the old 1060, 6 gigabyte. Not in every game, of course. I think I had two games where I hit that level. And that was right where NVIDIA had uh, had told us it would be, like up to 1.5x, a 1060. So for... What could be argued an inflation-adjusted price of the 1063 gigabyte from a year and a half, almost two years ago, it's it's fine. It's very good. It's just we're looking for these really exciting like gains in performance and reduction in price. And I don't think that they're being pushed very hard right now, to put it mildly, by the competition because... AMD is still sitting on the 500 series cards for that sort of mainstream 1080p gamer. And they're not getting. How many fat
2: years ago like was Polaris released? Good question. Four? I do not... Three? I think three? at least three. I think it was three years ago. Yeah,
3: 2016. The Polaris
2: was, was launched. Yeah. That's kind of nuts. We have some long lived. Graphics architectures here it's like consoles we're sitting on the same
1: GPU architecture for well not as long as consoles, not six years mm. but i am I just want to see more like i i we 've already seen rumors about more, and we'll probably talk about that later in the podcast, but more and more in like the mainstream segment, like get closer to two hundred dollars and then go below two hundred dollars and see what they can do with the like the board-powered cards. And I don't think they'll make as big a splash as they did with Maxwell with the 750 Ti, but just generational leaps in performance and what we can do with less power. Because that's one thing about touring so far we're not really seeing. Like, if you look at the performance jump from the 1060 to this 1660 Ti, that's coming with 84 millimeters squared of additional die space the same TDP, and for whatever reason, all the add-in board partners ship these cards, at least so far, with an eight-pin connector. And I believe NVIDIA said that they would all be eight-pin connectors, which is a little odd unless it's exclusively drawing power from the GPU or from the uh, PSU, because you could get by on 120 watt TDP with just um, slot power plus a six-pin it gives additional overclocking headroom, but we have to wait for cards that actually will push like 120, 130% power to actually even begin to use some of that versus a six pin. So it's just kind of interesting. Like I think the next card will probably end up being like a six pin power connector and um, a lower TDP and probably closer to this, the 1060 like maybe a little 10, 15, 20% bump over the 1060, but occupy about the same price level. Is this, I mean, 279, you'd think the next card would be a little bit less. So maybe $200, maybe 220, who knows? But anyway, that's way too many words for final thoughts about this.
2: Sure. Overall, I like were, the card. I, I I like the technology. I like that they were able to scrap the Tensor cores and RTX stuff and and machine learning stuff. And you know, though you know, ML the the DLSS would have been kind of cool in a product like this. But you know, that's still a lot of extra stuff in the die and extra power that is going to be needed to draw. And you know, you're you're you know they're juggling with you know what they want to offer as uh, as a feature to sell cards versus what the price is of all that. So I can understand getting rid of RTX and DLSS and machine learning and just having this really focused card that doesn't eat a whole lot of power that performs really well. That you know is is a lower price than the initial uh what 1060 but still performs better but it's not a, a paradigm shift it's not like the original uh g t x 670 six eighty six seventy series which were amazing as well as Pascal GTX 1070 1080 when they were released it was you know it was a no-brainer to get one of those because they were so much faster at the 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 prices offered than than anything before and that was of course before you know the crypto crap uh but yeah it's um it's nice to see things getting back on their sea legs
1: this this would be a different story if we didn't still have pascal out there in the retail yeah. supply chain where you can you can still buy a 1070 brand new for like 329 so then you look at that excuse me you look at that versus this and this is around the same performance if not the same performance as a 1070 Two gigabytes less memory, if that matters to you, but about fifty dollars less. So, to me, that that's that's good, uh, but it's not as compelling as it would be if the next you know product up was like four hundred and fifty dollars, and this started to look like a huge, uh, like, performance boost and a budget price. But you know, we I've said all this stuff before. It's, uh, I I think it's it's. Like I said in the review, just a logical progression of touring, Uh and DLSS and stuff. That's not possible with something that doesn't have the native hardware support because DLSS really is just, you know, it's, it's in conjunction with real-time ray tracing. So you have to have that in the hardware, but we'll be, we'll be here all night if we don't move on. Moving so on. Affects, uh, Jim, you reviewed memory. It's coming back. Shiny, shiny Ram, Ram memory coming back in 2019.
0: Uh, yes, it is. So this is uh, this is not. Uh, it, it just launched last week, but it's not brand new. As Corsair teased this at CES, and this is their new Dominator Platinum, which is their flagship memory brand. But it's Dominator Platinum RGB, uh, and not just any RGB. Capellix uh, RGB. And I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, I had some confusion about that when I was writing the story because I couldn't recall my meetings at CES, but, uh, Capellix is a, uh, a new micro LED technology that Corsair, uh, developed along with Primax. Uh, it's a Taiwan based electronics firm. They do a lot of uh, OEM stuff and there's other companies pursuing similar stuff, but basically what this is, is a, uh, a new way of putting leds rgb leds uh directly taking the, the substrate and putting it directly on the pcb so you you by doing that you can significantly reduce the size uh, so the volume of a capellix led is 0.2 millimeters cubed whereas a traditional uh led uh, is 2.8 millimeters cubed so a significant reduction there they're much more energy efficient so what that does is that gives you more brightness at the same power draw or less energy efficiency at the same brightness. So for something like Memory, where they're, they're this is their first product using it, it's both brighter and a little bit more energy efficient. They kind of played the middle there. But when they apply this to their gaming uh, wireless headsets, wireless keyboards, uh, you're going to get basically better battery life is the, the short term. You get nice, uh, bright, relatively bright LEDs, RGB LEDs, and the better battery life. Uh, So you get some actually decent wireless uh, per-key LED options for things like keyboards. So that's the flashy side of this. Uh, But looking at it, you compare it to the former Dominator Platinum. It's a very similar design. You're going to recognize it immediately. The heatsink's been redesigned slightly, uh, but it's the same basic shape. And it's their their kind of highest-binned, highest-quality chips. You know, they're not—Corsair partners with various OEMs. They're not making the memory chips themselves. But in terms of what they pick based on their suppliers, this this is their kind of highest-quality parts that go into this series. And uh, they're not the highest performance. That usually goes to their Vengeance series. Uh, But they're they're pretty high-performance. And again, the the higher quality is sort of the, the impression. And so here, if you look at, if you're watching the video, you can see them. I wouldn't run them like this, but just to see the kind of side by side, you've got the the old style do- Dominator Platinum on the left and the, the new style uh, Dominator Platinum RGB on the right. There's only 12 Capellix LEDs in that, in that uh, uh, top of that module there. And they're still quite bright, as you could see in the video earlier. In terms of uh, performance, they're releasing a ton of SKUs, I think there's 22 different SKUs of this memory ranging from 3,000 megahertz at six, you know, 16 gigabyte kit at 3,000 to 128 gigabyte kits and speeds all the way up to 4,800. Relatively tight timings. The kit we had was a 32 gigabyte 4x8 kit at uh, 3,200 megahertz with the XMP profile. And basically because we've started over here, we don't have a huge history of RAM benchmark results. So I benchmarked basically the Dominator Platinum RGB at its stock, at several overclocked uh settings based on frequency and timings and also its predecessor the non RGB Dominator Platinum uh both at 2666 and 3000 and in various voltages too depending on on the overclock.
2: And dude, I'm I'm so impressed with this because I've tested memory before and I hate it. I hate testing memory, especially when you start overclocking it because stuff gets wonky. So kudos to you for the patience and the skill to test memory because memory sucks.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, it, you do have to be careful. So we've got a nice dedicated test bed, so that was good. I could play with the processor frequencies, I could play with the the various timings and the voltages, and it did. It took uh, out of the you know seven results or let's see uh, five. No, six, I can't count. Six results, six uh, categories that I tested. There were probably 20 different starting points where I tried to get stable frequencies, tried to pick frequencies and timings that made sense. Um, and uh, and this is what we ended up with. And the benefit of overclocking memory after a certain point is going to vary based on your needs. Uh, you, you We've run some synthetic benchmarks here. We've run some tests to kind of show bandwidth latency how much this affects your workflow, how much it's going to affect what you're doing with your games or your, your professional applications is is going to depend on those applications themselves. So we try to show sort of a baseline of what you can expect. And this memory, this RGB Dominator Platinum memory overclocks very well. We got it to a maximum of 4,000 megahertz at 1.4 volts, uh, which is under the, you know, DDR4 is tricky. The whole point of DDR4 was you got lower voltages out of the gate a lot of uh, memory runs at 1.2 or 1.35. They say that it's sort of 1.5 is the maximum. Others say don't go that high. So 1.4 is probably a good, a good safe high end level to go with your voltages. And when you're at that voltage at 4,000 megahertz with this memory, you see a nice progression. It scales almost literally, linearly with frequency. Uh, So you see the numbers go up uh, for, for memory focused benchmarks and, uh, you know it performed performed well it stayed as cool relatively cool didn't have any hiccups once you once you dialed in these frequencies it didn't didn't have any issues with stability uh so you, you can push this memory quite hard and if if you go for one of the higher clock kits out of the gate you may even be able to get quite a bit more on top of that as well so you know you, you see what you get here latencies and uh speeds go up latencies go down it's good memory it's good solid memory now it is a little bit pricey although it's not significantly more expensive than the non rgb platinum uh memory so you know the dominator platinum memory is not going to be your cheapest option in general before you before this introduction but now that this is out you're paying about the same maybe ten dollars more at each skew level than you would for um for for uh, non-rgb dominator platinum so if you're willing to pay that that premium uh it's a good choice The memory integrates directly with the IQ software. So you can set up all kinds of uh, profiles. There's hardware-based profiles that'll, that'll store the lighting effects that you choose on the memory. So you can take it out of a system, put it in a system that doesn't have IQ and it'll still, still work. There's software control. If you want to do that, that gives you a few more options, things like music visualizers and all that. Uh, It integrates with all your Corsair RGB peripherals, works quite well, very easy to set up and, uh, it looks pretty – it's the best-looking memory I've seen. I don't like a lot of RGBs in my case, but these RGBs, you can make them look crazy, but you can also make them look somewhat classy, and they're bright, they're responsive. It's just a, – it's a nice kit, and here you can so see So what, all a, what the about
2: those, those G-Skill Royals? Okay. Well, Are those nice-looking?
0: I'm sure – Somebody thinks they're nice looking. They're a little too—I uh, I don't have um,
2: a little too garish.
0: Yeah, I don't. For you, I don't have the style to support something like that. It would just not look right in my setup. So, uh, but uh, if you're interested in in something like this, even if you just go with a nice white accent on your lighting, uh, it's it's uh, it's real nice. So, you know, like I said there's a skew here for everybody uh based on timing speed capacities again pricey you know memory prices think we have come down a bit over where they were but uh this is not the cheapest memory out there but if you're looking for something really nice real un- a real unique look uh with good performance it's worth uh worth checking out
2: you know it's interesting as another aside uh Corsair was one of the first to actually introduce lighting in their dims uh, with their original ddr1 dims i think that they they had those uh lights that that would show you know the the uh the workload on there or you know how 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 much bandwidth is being consumed and what's another word for that why am i just blanking out on this other than Accepting? the alcohol load is it
4: activity?
2: Oh. load it's a four letter word, go figure, but anyway, yeah, I mean uh back in the day it was d d r one they had those first ones they had to do some really interesting engineering to get them to light up um because you know the power that is provided to a dim slot you know back in those times it uh you know you had to do some really finicky interesting things to get it all to to come together so it's it's neat to see them come with something like this and and uh, do you remember do you remember those dims that you could pop on that LCD display that it would then would scroll across words that you wanted to put in or temperatures or speeds or any of that This is like
3: twelve yeah, like high school 12 years uh, ago LED banner thing you, you Yeah, exactly. you could program exactly. in yep. 8 or 10 words or something
2: it's bizarre yeah. But moving along sorry I'm in
1: favor of more screens on everything. We saw a power supply at uh, CES from a Seuss that has a, like an OLED display built
2: into it. Uh, not new I, lightning I card has the MSI lightning card has an OLED display. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, everything.
1: It, the case itself, every component within the case could and should have its own display and RGB lighting. Uh, It's up to including the heat
4: spreader
3: on your CPU.
1: It's just wasted space that could be taken up with more of these uh, RGBs. What were the RGB lights called again, Jim, in this memory? Uh, It's uh, Capellix, I think. Capellix. Acapella lighting. Sort of.
2: Compelling. So there's no instruments behind them. None.
1: You know what? That memory would look great in a fancy new motherboard. Like the ROG Maximus 11 formula, which is one of the more deluxe Intel Z390 motherboards on the market uh, today. They have one.
2: How much do you think that box weighs with all that crap in there? 30 pounds. At least. You could do some. If only they had a handle on that, you could use that as like a barbell. Actually, you know what? In all seriousness,
1: because this motherboard has VRM hybrid water blocks built into it from EK, it Variable probably does weight. It a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, with or without liquid, that's true. Yeah.
2: You could make this weigh thirty pounds if you wanted to, Josh. I could. I could but put some depleted you- uranium in the slots, and that'd be great. Do you have the standoffs for it? No,
1: I don't. Can your standoffs handle a 30-pound <laughs> motherboard. Uh, so if <laughs> if you look at the list of features, uh, basically, Asus with these ROG boards, they we, we've seen the more affordable Strix boards. Uh, I have one of them for like a mini-ITX board. They're not even that expensive, which to me kind of was mind-boggling because I had known the ROG, the Republic of Gamers brand, to be these very... Uh, like deluxe and uh, premium pricing to go along with the premium features. And this definitely falls into that category. This is the full-on R- ROG experience here. So you're getting... What are some of the features here? You have dual LAN. You have the Aquantis 5G LAN, the 5 gigabit. You have an Intel gigabit NIC as well. You've got... Uh, the the cross chill ek3, what they call the the VRM hybrid cooling, you can use it passively or connect it to a liquid uh, cooling loop. But don't forget the the two live dash OLED. Yes, exactly. Two inch OLED display built yep. into
2: the motherboard. Wait, did you say two live dash? Weren't they yes. a Miami rap group in the '80s yep. that had really terrible lyric l- lyrics? Yeah. Right. That was, that was the Gigabyte really Live
3: crew. Yes.
2: JR. So,
1: uh, kind of scrolling through here, and there is a, a plethora of imagery to feast your eyes on here in this review from Maury, who took it through its paces, looked at you know, every aspect of the board. And I will say, in spite of its costs, which I have not mentioned yet, is four hundred and let's see, I think the list is four forty nine. It was actually selling for it's about four twenty. Yeah, yeah.
2: four twenty.
3: And that's that's I, Looney Tunes, man. I do like that's X three ninety nine prices.
0: Uh because we've seen so many GPUs now that are getting fatter and fatter. They update a lot or they space their by 16 PCI ports for triple slot so that top spot uh, is there's just nothing beneath it that you're going to be blocking if you've got a nice fat uh, GPU in there
2: I tell you they better have really good audio because getting rid of my PCI sound card is just not an option dude they have (laughs) Sonic Studio Link
1: 3 But you know what? If you look at the strengths and weaknesses on the final page, and this earned a a surprising editor's choice from Maury, who... He is doesn't pretty, do that often. No, he is very yeah. hard on motherboards. Uh, well, I mean, he you know, I'm not going to go down that road. But he is... Uh, he looked it over, really, he, under weaknesses, he said price, of course. This is very expensive. But he, he thought you got what you paid for. He thought that every aspect of this board as he tested it to him justified the pricing and he tests a lot of motherboards and he even put CMOS battery placement up on the strengths because if you look, not every board does this, especially the boards that have this kind of armor. I know of at least one other uh, ROG board where you have to remove the armor to get to the battery. Not so in this
3: one, easily accessible. you You can see it peeking out through the bottom. Right. Uh, so honestly, where to go, cool, is... Yeah. If you're not going to water cool your CPU, this is maybe not your best choice. Uh, but that, because when you, some of the pictures he shows and he's integrated the his water cooling loops right into the motherboard, yeah, you know, that's kind of neat and it's going to make your build look very very unique. But if you're slapping a giant uh, thermal take on there, it's you're going to lose a little bit of of the joy that this thing could give you. So check it out at
1: the website, PCPro.com. Mori, a surprising editor's choice. Find out why. More at 11. Actually, it is 11. Here, anyway, in the Eastern time zone. It's 11.08 p.m. We should move along then. Yeah, so give me more. Give
0: me more, like, a nice air cooler that you could maybe not be the best choice for this board.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, if you're going to spend $449 on a motherboard and you have no money left... Start looking around. What's the number one? Guys, I'll take a poll here. What's the number one CPU cooler on Amazon.com? Just take a guess.
2: Something Cooler formal. Master. Yep, you're getting warmer. Something TX. Yep, TX.
1: TX1138 uh, from Cooler Master. Hmm. Uh, it was actually the first Cooler Master cooler designed by George Lucas. In the late 1970s. Uh, I think it was when he was still a <laughs> full student at USC. Yes. No, the Hyper 212 Evo. It, anytime I do a cooler review, I've been doing cooler reviews for five years at this website. And anytime I have ever done a cooler review, I had people ask me about comparisons to the Hyper 212 Evo. Why isn't the 212 Evo on the chart? 212 Evo is the best. And I went out and bought one way back then just so i would have one on hand so i could compare it to stuff i ended up i think reviewing it at least twice over the last five years and i got it back out again i have my 212 uo in the box unpacked it all put it back on the test bench because cooler master has released the hyper 212 black edition coolers and these are not just a cosmetic upgrade they are Fully fleshed out redesigns of the 212. Basically the 212 Evo. Evo is missing from the name. But the Black Edition, you could think of it as the sort of deluxe version of the Evo. And the MSRP of this cooler is $40. But the street price is only 35 So you're right back into that Hyper 212 Evo territory where it's been dominating Amazon for years in that 30 to $35 range. And it's the absolute go-to aftermarket CPU cooler for a lot of people and it wasn't perfect and I've installed and uninstalled this thing enough to know some of its flaws like the mounting system for the Evo was not the best. It's this X-shaped thing that's got kind of like a spring-loaded action to it and you have to sort of fish it through the heat pipes to get it installed and it can only be oriented one way because there's like this little indentation you have to have in the right location it was annoying. People Dealt with it because once you got it mounted, the performance was great, and the price is great. This new Black Edition has an all-new mounting system. I'm holding the heatsink right here, which of course has some thermal compound on it, so I just took it off the board. But if if you look in the review, it has legitimate uh, mounting hardware. Like we're into that kind of Noctua. I can get this to focus territory where you have metal brackets that screw into place. Whether you have an Intel or AMD uh, situation, and it, it just it it looks more polished, it feels more polished, it it mounts more easily and more securely. The two twelve Evo for me, and even tightening it down all the way at all four points, I could always kind of rotate it against the CPU and kind of float along on the thermal interface material. But not so with this one. This thing is like locked in place, and the results showed this because even though they're very close to the Evo, it was still on average, about a degree cooler. And I attribute that mainly to the improved mounting mechanism. But when we look at sound levels, the actual performance of this new fan, same temperature results, essentially, but, drastically lower noise and the the evo was never the quietest cooler it's always lived around 44 45 decibels for me under load and it's only spinning at around 2000 rpm and and this new fan is is also rated up to 2000 i think it was only spinning around 1920 or so for me at load but the same noise levels as like an intel stock cooler literally like 38 and a half decibels Six and a half decibels lower than the two twelve Evo, which is—it's it, huge. If six and a half doesn't sound like a lot to you, insert joke here. But uh, it's—and it, forget about like it, yes, there's an RGB fan on this, and if you don't like the RGB fan, which is where, well implemented here, by the way. It has the same um, RGB connector that will go on most boards, and it's certified for the different standards. It also comes with an optional little like handheld controller, so you don't even need a motherboard that has those headers. You can just like click through the different colors and patterns and things. That's the way I tested it. But if you don't like the RGB aspect of this, there's another version of it that's actually just a little bit less and comes with a, a plain black fan, but is otherwise identical. So... I, I think they hit it out of the park with this. I think it's, in every way, an improvement over the 212 Evo. I love the mounting mechanism. And especially now that it's quiet, 38, decibels on load, with the fan pretty much spinning at max RPM, is fantastic. So if you're looking for an aftermarket cooler, 35 bucks on Amazon when I published the review, it's it's just a no-brainer to me. Gave it the editor's choice, and... Very, very happy with this, and I think a lot of people who've who've gone to that evo that 's the name that's still out there, and there's still a lot of reviews online saying that that's the cooler to get but I think this this has supplanted it easily, plus it just looks a lot nicer like they've gone with a a black nickel finish, no more exposed copper. the base is a little bit nicer, like the actual base where it meets the CPU was a little rough with the two twelve evo it kind of depended on on which, like, like, unit you got? How flat it was, and how well milled it was. But it's just overall a better product for around the same money, which is always great. Does anybody have any thoughts about
2: this? A new legend on? is born again. No.
1: Yes,
3: I miss the I, old days when you had the chance of driving a screwdriver through your motherboard every time you mounted a CPU cooler. That was living.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I ruined a, a a tie-in dual Athlon board Ooh. by trying to get a a heatsink on there. That that made me very very sad because it was a cool board. I ran Doom 3 and multi-threading on it back way back in the day. I do not miss
1: stabbing with a like a flathead screwdriver at a bracket to try to get it over like a socket 370B. <laughs> Those days are gone, and I'm very, very happy about it. I will say, though, speaking of living dangerously, I had had a couple of requests to test an Intel stock cooler. Like, where's the like the reference? Like, the, There's a reason Intel does not ship the stock cooler with their un, unlocked parts. Like this Cabby Lake i7-7700K, which, by the way, the reason I test with that, even though it's a couple of generations old at this point, that is the hottest CPU I've ever used. It is astonishingly hot. And I thought it was just my... CPU but I bought the first one. I think I bought it at micro center. I ordered another one of these and it was just as hot. It's just a ridiculously hot CPU and running that stock cooler on this thing, even in a cold room, I was not brave enough to run it in a warm environment because in my cold room testing that night, it was 98 C just under a standard load with that cooler. So a Delta of like 82 point something and just absolutely it finished the test. I didn't actually thermal throttle or uh, have a shutdown, but you do not want to use an Intel stock cooler. So do yourself a favor and get something a little bit better than that. Uh, Moving on.
0: Well, actually, I'm I'm uh, I can't get over the fact that they missed the marketing opportunity to name this the Hyper 212 Emo.
1: (sighs) Ooh. That because it's all, it's all black, I get it. They're kind of like getting into that uh, "be quiet" territory with the dark rock stuff, where it's all black. Like the black nickel is is trendy. I think we're seeing more coolers that are going to be like shunning the the naked like aluminum fins and copper heat pipes. But they'll come back. Everything comes back eventually. And you know what else comes back? Speakers. When was the last time we talked about? a speaker review when it wasn't like a little, you know, pair, I think, was it you, Jim, who reviewed the last set of speakers we had on the site? Uh, was another like Logitech, was set? The
2: Logitech ones that had the, uh, the LCD bias. That's yeah, the right. Lightning.
0: Yeah. It, it was, it was the, uh, uh, the Logitech gamer speakers that had the RGB lighting that shined off the back, uh, of the speaker up onto your wall to create the, Oh, yeah back.
2: yeah that was that was probably one of the last speakers that i think i reviewed for this site is the corsair twenty five hundred s p two twenty five hundred 2500, something like that they're the you know the pretty high end speakers but it you know it was a two point one setup and that was back in two thousand ten speakers just aren't Especially PC ones. I'm still running my Logi uh, 5.1s. What are those? The uh, I can't remember fifty, fifty two hundred something. I can't I'm trying to remember my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but these things have not changed for thirteen years, fourteen years.
0: Yeah, there's well, here, here Sebastian has uh, got showing for uh, us.
1: My computer speakers are the uh, Boston Acoustics A26, which feature a six and a half millimeter driver and a one inch soft dome tweeter and really punch above their weight. Wait, and six, and uh, six and a half millimeter driver? Six and a half inch. Did I say millimeter? Thank six you. And a half you inch. said millimeter. I did. Okay. So this is the six and a half inch driver, listen to that, and a one inch silk dome tweeter. I- Kind of a polite top end uh you know it's a silk dome so it doesn't really have extended uh harsh high frequency response but uh an excellent uh option especially when you buy it refurbished i picked up this pair for around 200 dollars. so uh
0: well anyway what i'm about to talk about has nothing to do with that quality or price range uh this is an entry-level system in every sense of the word it's the logitech z606 it's a powered 5.1 speaker system It's the successor to the Z506, which is now, gosh, nine years old. I think they they came out in 2010. Uh, And it's not Logitech's gaming brand, the Logitech G brand, which is those RGB speakers we mentioned before. This is sort of their consumer standard Logitech line. And Logitech has a lot of really good speakers, a lot of good affordable speakers. And in fact, uh, one of the Desktop setups I have right now is about a hundred dollar uh, two point one system, and uh, this is a surround sound powered system. It's one hundred and twenty nine ninety nine, so yeah, one hundred thirty bucks. It's uh, five point one with five identical satellites, uh, which is a little interesting because their previous, those Z five hundred six, had a uh, center channel that was different. You know, it was laid horizontally instead of vertically, so. It, you know, went a little better in a in a traditional speaker arrangement. Uh, whereas it these are like all gone,
3: what's uh, wait, right, there, there we go. Yeah, that one. exactly. There you go. Now I remember what speakers I have. <laughs>
0: there, you, there you go. Uh, so, uh, yeah, th- this is uh, they're, they're all identical. They're about 10 watts each on the satellites, 25 watts RMS on the subwoofer, and they're okay at that price range. They sound, you know what you would expect there it's a warm sound it's slightly muddy it doesn't really have that impact but it's perfectly acceptable uh as i mentioned i would if, if you have a, a setup in your home theater like you're going to hook up a gaming pc or you're going to hook up a uh a, a, you know for your blu-ray player or media player i would go with something like this over an entry-level soundbar but there's one problem uh where they didn't improve in the last nine years over the z506 and that's in the inputs the if I could find it here, the inputs on this guy are analog only. It's got Bluetooth, Bluetooth 4.2, so you can get a digital stereo input wirelessly through Bluetooth. But if we're talking about wired inputs, and particularly discrete multi-channel inputs, you, your only option are individual RCA inputs for each channel. And they talk about how you know, in a because again, this isn't the gamer setup, so this could also apply to like home theater users a lot of like DVD and Blu-ray players have those individual RCA outputs on the back for each channel. And that was true years ago. And you can probably still find some players today that have that, but that's not nearly as common today. It's also not as common to have that on your PC. Like some motherboards still have the individual three and a half millimeter outputs for each channel, which you could then adapt to RCA, but not not a lot of them do. Uh, Laptops certainly don't. Macs certainly don't. And so you're going to need some way to get a multi-channel signal into here. Now if you do input a stereo signal, you can do, you know, 5.1 processing and, and you've got some controls on here or on the remote that lets you do the simulated surround sound that, you know, kind of expands the the stereo image to all the speakers. Uh, and, and that's okay, but it, you know, I don't I don't like that some people might. I've never I've never liked that even in, in its higher end like Dolby uh, ProLogic implementations. And this is just a generic sort of signal processor. So, in that setting, if you don't have a an input that can get you these, or at least easily get you through some sort of adapter, these these multi-channel RCA inputs, you're really limiting yourself. And if you're going to be using this as a stereo set, you know, if it, because you don't have those inputs, you're better off going with another a 2.1 setup, even even from Logitech, and you can get some like I think I have the ones I have for the Z533s. It's a 2.1 stereo, nice uh, speaker from Logitech. It sounds better. It's a little cheaper and and like I said you're, you're just not you're missing the point here or they're missing the point I think. so by not having a digital input of any kind other than Bluetooth a, a digital wired input, you're really uh, missing you know, or, or limiting yourself. It's just not I just don't see how it's worth it. So the sound at that price is fine, not gonna blow you out of the water but it's what what you'd expect at $130 dollars and if you have those analog inputs, it's a good option. But I think it's a miss here. I think, you know, it's been nine years since the Z506, and it's basically the same system with the addition of Bluetooth, which is welcome, but not enough. You you, you had, I mean, even a USB input on this thing to say nothing of optical or HDMI or anything like that. That's what it's missing. Uh, It's got the DAC. I mean, it's got to have a DAC inside. It's not a matter of not having a DAC because you got the Bluetooth signal. So it's doing some sort of digital analog conversion, and to not have another way to access that seems... Uh, it just seems kind of limited. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, unless you have that specific kind of source device with those discrete analog outputs, it's something to, I, I would avoid it. I would go for a another 5.1 system with a digital input. Or like I said, if you're just primarily going to be doing stereo, uh, Logitech's, Logitech has a ton of great options in that price range for
2: 2.1 setups. You know, Jim, you made me very, very sad here because i <clears throat> I looked up when I actually did buy my logitech z fifty five hundred speakers, and it was two thousand five so yeah, they're fourteen years old, and when they die and they will eventually die, there is nothing out there to really replace them. well, Logitech does
0: have a higher end five point one setup with digital inputs, but it's four hundred dollars. So yeah. you can go to a higher price point, and you'll get a better quality sound as well as that flexibility on inputs. So there are options, but at this sort of...
2: Have you tried to, to buy one of those inputs? lately? Because that's a that's a, seriously a 10-year-old product, yeah. and I don't know how much they actually shipped. That's
0: that's a good point.
2: Hmm. Anyway, sorry about being allowed. Mm.
1: There's not enough... Demand for speakers, it seems these days. There's so many gaming headsets and new ones coming out all the time, and better and better portable sound like that. But dedicated speakers, it's pretty much into the like uh active monitors world now. Well, unless you want surround sound, but you know, you can make that work too. But I know I personally use that set I was just talking about. I know Jim has like a nice dedicated pair of uh active monitors, minor passive, but to get. That big, full-range sound. It's its almost a thing of the past, which is very sad to me. My Logitech Z2300 speaker set, oh,
3: yeah. that
1: that was a little old when I bought it in 2009, I think is when I bought mine. And those are fantastic. Like, not a lot of top-end, but cheap. it was all about the bass with those. It wasn't... Yeah, I mean, it was only around $100 by the time I bought it. But yeah, like the one oh, okay. two dollars price range... Like we had those, the Klipsch, the THX certified that 2.1 system forever. That was like $150 and then the C2300. And then you, you went up a little bit to go to the five channel surrounds and Logitech. I think it was living in that 250 to $300 price range. for A lot of the nicer stuff, but you just don't have as many options anymore, which is unfortunate. But uh, I will quickly cover the last review because I wrote it and this went up on the site today. It's for a Asus ROG Strix Flare mechanical gaming keyboard. This is an interesting looking product. This is a RGB keyboard, of course. It's using Cherry MX RGB switches. It gives you a lot of flexibility with the switch type. So whatever your preference is, this is offered in red, brown, blue, black, speed, silver, or silent red options. It works with their software as far as customization of the lighting uh key customization it has macro supports Uh, this is a wired keyboard one of the things that was nice about it is it does have a usb pass-through so you can plug another device in like your mouse or a phone or something while using the keyboard and as far as features go it's right up there with any of the higher end keyboards. Uh, The construction is good. It is plastic on the top and bottom. I've seen quite a few keyboards lately that have like a a metal top plate. This one's still plastic. It felt rigid though, not creaky or anything. The, The one complaint I had about this, and we had the MX Red version. And I like Red. It's that linear feel. It doesn't have like a click just kind of like as you bottom out keys and i'm a heavy-handed typist it it does have that nice mechanical kind of feel and sound to it but not clicky like a blue would be and missing that slight tactile feel of a brown but that's that's really a discussion for another another uh, day about like key switch preference but the implementation of key switches is one thing the the problem I had with the overall feel, the only real detractor I had for this thing was the key caps, which is kind of important because that's what you're actually you know, interacting with. Key caps here are a little thin and the overall feel was a little bit less premium. Like they felt like the key caps that would be on a, a less expensive keyboard and the lighting was kind of diffuse coming off the keys, which was kind of nice actually because one of the things about this that's very different is kind of like those speakers we were talking about, this has like ambient lighting built in. Have you guys ever seen a keyboard that had like side down firing lights that matched the RGB effects of the key lights? No. I mean, it was, it's subtle, but it did create a little bit of a glow around the keyboard And it matched whatever color, like the zone of keys directly uh, adjacent to it was. I don't know if it's borrowing lighting from the keys themselves or how that works, but uh, you can see a picture in the review. It's actually kind of a bright light coming off the edge of the keyboard there, but interesting things like that. Oh, and the other really novel thing about this design, the, the logo, they call it the badge on this, is a piece of acrylic and it slides in the top and slides out to allow you to use a blank that it includes, which you can put your own logo on. I mean, if you wanted to go have it etched, I guess uh, you could have it like whatever you wanted it to say, whatever picture you wanted on it. I mean, I could get Josh's face engraved into mine and put that in this. Oh, could you?
4: Hmm.
1: I think so. I could try myself. I'll just use like the edge of a knife. Use like a pocket knife and just scratch, you know, a heart, and then like write the word Josh in the middle of the heart. But uh, anyway, uh, the the issues with the keyboard, like I said, uh, a little bit light on the keycaps themselves, which you wouldn't expect because the pricing, the list pricing anyway, is one hundred and seventy nine dollars. So all the other features, the novel lighting, the you know customizable badge, all that stuff. The overall feature set is very good. It's kind of where you expect from one of these premium keyboards. But like dedicated media keys, uh, all that kind of stuff. But the actual street pricing on the one that I reviewed is like $139 when I looked yesterday. So it is selling for considerably less. I think $139 is where I would want this to be, but I'd like to see maybe some sturdier keycaps. Not necessarily like double shot keycaps, but something a little bit thicker, a little bit uh, more premium feeling. But you can check out the review and decide for yourself. That's the beauty of this. We have, like, let's see, there's a number of news stories to get to as we enter the second half of hour number two here. So let's get through them. Uh, who wrote up news on the MX, the new laptop GPUs? I guess that was Scott. Has anybody looked? Sir, not appearing on this podcast. Yeah. This is kind of odd because it's not necessarily a new GPU from NVIDIA. This is not an RX mobile GPU or a new GTX mobile GPU. It's what would appear to be the successor to the MX-150 that we see on a lot of sort of laptops that offer like a light gaming experience, not like a real uh, powerful GPU or using the latest architecture. But something new that we're going to see out there in the laptop space it's the mx230 and 250 they're still on gddr5 memory or can be paired with ddr3 depending on what the oem wants to do and uh, it is scott was speculating here minor performance regression is yeah. possible to the MX 150.
0: The, the the strange thing about this, and there's some speculation that it could be, you know, that this is, you know, merely a a, a die shrink or, or a, a different process, but but same same basic performance target. But the the issue is, Nvidia, like like most companies teasing products like this, show relative performance, and they're testing it or, or advertising it against the UHD 620, the Intel integrated part. And they're saying that the MX250 is up to three times, 3.5 times faster, and the 230 is up to 2.6 times faster. But the MX150, which the, is the older part, is listed as up to four times faster than the 620. So a little question there about, you know, maybe there's been some... Dri- I mean, we know Intel has done some driver improvements, so that could account for that, that the, the, the 620 has improved since that initial test has been conducted. Or there's just you know this is a, a a different uh part on a different node that that could be that could be a slight performance regression but it's just basically a better more efficient process for that that lower end uh lower end chipset or lower end performance level
4: yeah
1: it, like like everything else we'll just have to wait and see i guess when we actually have hardware in hand but not not the most exciting news but this could be if you like GPUs and you like saving money. You know that there's something about that $279 price point. I wonder who just released a product for 279 and AMD mm. was very happy to send out PR uh about a price drop for the Vega 56 at were, that... were they
0: happy though? Do you think? Uh I mean what, they, the, the... Were, they the t- timing and tone of that press release was more like, oh, shit, <laughs> we have to do something. <laughs> I don't know if happy would be the word I would uh, describe. but
1: It was framed in a very positive way. There were a lot of positive uh, words. I'm not going to rip on them. And obviously, they have to do something. And If they don't have Navi ready yet, then what better than to just compete on price, which is something that AMD has you know, historically done. Like, give you a great bang for your buck, even if they can't say we are the performance leader. But... Uh, has anyone actually seen an RX Vega 56 for this price? I have not.
0: I've seen them listed, but they're not in stock.
3: I checked before we started, and it was in stock with two left. It is once again out of stock.
4: Hmm.
1: Where is this where, where it was in stock with two left? Was it Amazon or was it? No, Newegg. Newegg. Oh, I see. Yep. Let's yeah. see. Oh, yeah, it's back to auto notify. But, That's right.
3: Yeah, it's back there.
1: So they'll be selling these as soon as they can get them in stock. I can imagine they'll just sell out every every ten minutes.
3: Yeah, uh, and the phrasing fun. suggested this isn't permanent. Yeah, which is it unfortunate. Might be, but
1: I mean, how permanent is anything? How permanent is the Vega Fifty Six? Like that, it's a couple years old now, and you would think that it'll be supplanted at some point this year, mid year, end year, whenever we see the Navi stuff if indeed we'll get like a higher end Navi first, I mean, I don't know if that'll be, you mm-hmm. know if we'll get like the lower end first or not, but anyhow, I mean, for, for 279, if you can find it in stock, you're getting eight gigabytes. So they can, they can, they have that advantage over the 1660 TI. Uh. very good performance. I mean, that's one card that I have not dragged back out because for those who don't know when, when the site kind of changed hands, when I took over as editor as in chief, I decided I wanted to be personally accountable for any benchmark numbers that I was displaying, you know? So that means not reusing any of the old benchmarks. So my first couple of weeks were literally benchmarking and benchmarking to try to build up a stable of comparisons to actually launch that first gpu review idea, which is actually the rtx 2060 and I, the 56 is one that i haven't retested i i did the rx 590 and i did the vega 64 now the vega 7 or the the radeon 7 but have not gone back and, and visited the vega 56 yet so i'm going to
2: need to do that at some point to sort of fill things out but yeah, it's, if it had been widely available at two seventy nine, that would be a smashing product. Because I haven't even had an HBM based video card here in my house yet, and I was going to get one. And then I kind of dug a little deeper. It's like not going to happen.
0: I think we still have the Fury X. We could probably send you.
3: Don't no no. no. no? You've always wanted to be a furry, Josh. Come on.
2: No, no, don't.
3: I have the Nano
1: here. (laughs) It's out of reach or I'd grab it, but I've always loved that card just because it's so comically small.
0: Yeah, it's a tough little card.
1: Yeah, Uh, seriously, I dropped it on the floor much to my chagrin, and uh, it's fine other than a scuff. But uh, yeah, if you can find them, Vega 56 279. And now let's get into the endless speculation about upcoming GPUs because, you know, it just wouldn't be a GPU launch without immediately talking about what's next. And it seems like, well, literally, we've had a graphics card per month, more than a graphics card per month since the beginning of the year. Three major releases in the last month and a half. So why wouldn't nvidia come out with even more graphics cards just to torture me and uh jeremy you wrote about the endless online speculation which has already begun it seems for some new nvidia gtx card
3: oh yeah i mean we're already bored of the 1660 ti aren't we so we need something new and the the nice thing about these new cards it if they exist, and our friend AppySack is is usually not terribly wrong about this sort of thing. We're going to see in the coming months a GTX 1660, plain old non-TI version, and a 1650. It also will be the return of sort of that mid-range where you can't really afford an awesome GPU, but You've got enough cash left over. You don't have to depend on one that's on die. So if these are right, the 1650 is going to be under 200 bucks at 180. Whereas the the 1660 is going to sit at 230, both, you know, well within the range of just about any budget out there for someone just starting to get into this or is looking to set someone up with uh, something and doesn't want to spend too much on it. Now we don't know, A lot about these cards, unfortunately, Uh, it all being leaks and rumors and such. But according to the leaks, we're expecting the 1650 to have four gigabytes of RAM and a core clock sitting at about uh, 1.485 gigahertz. Not gonna blow anything out of the water, but it will be kind of nice. And you know, one day we might get like a, a 1650 GT or GS. Or maybe a 1600, and we can just all be utterly confused about what brand we're talking about because there are so many different model numbers kicking around. In theory, you're going to see one. Uh, the original thought was that you'd see it by the end of February, obviously, uh, unless something really magical happens tomorrow, which no one's talking about. It, it's mid Marchish. You're going to see that with the uh, lower cost one, you know, mid-year uh, end of April beginning of May assuming of course that they exist it's it's the, the $200 mark used to be a magic number it isn't anymore hasn't been for a few generations but it's it's kind of nice to see a couple of cards hit that area where you're you know you're a young kid you're just trying to build your first computer or you're building one for a parent or a sibling that you don't like enough to be able to say yeah well you can have my old 1080 know, yeah it it's a good price point anyone else interested in these or is it just going to be oh yeah you might as well stick it in an oem build and forget about it
0: Well i think depending on how things shape up i mean this is the continued assault that nvidia is able to levy against amd because they've they've got the high end they've got arguably good depending on your application they've got a good chunk of the mid range. They're going to now saturate the, you know, more entry level stuff too, because their, their performance lead allows them to segment down to every 34, 30 to $50 increments. So, I mean, I, I do want to, uh, it's good to see competition. I would, I, I hope we'll see more of this, Uh but these these could be good options at those prices. Uh I, I agree that the naming, I think we'll get used to it. The naming still is a little confusing to me and, uh, and splitting the RTX and GTX, uh, line instead of just using the that uh GTX or RTX uh name as the, as the differentiator having the different numbers as well it's a little strange uh but uh i mean this is this is going to continue to put pressure on team red
1: and speaking of naming i'll mention it was a a comment on twitter Jay's two cents when somebody was talking about the name like 1660 like seriously and and Jay said Somebody made the the joke what what because it was you know closer to two thousand than one thousand like if they gun with like fifteen hundred and Jay was like actually that's exactly what they said to me when I asked so I had never asked that specific question I asked if my question to them was is it sixteen sixty ti because you don't want to confuse people in the market with RTX versus GTX branding that was kind of a yes to that so but. You know, 1660 versus something else? Well, 16 is closer to 20 than 10 is. So there's your answer for whatever that's worth. Personally, I just want to see them put the RTX or GTX at the end of the name like they used to many years ago with, like, the GTX and the GT and the GTS and people who knew graphics cards knew what the difference was and the price kind of told the story. Like, oh, the GTS is the less expensive one, the GTX is the more expensive one. The Ultra is the really, really expensive one that has the highest performance. So anyway, uh were there any more rumors or speculation to get to what else was here? Oh, well, Jeremy, uh you posted <laughs> uh, it was it was like a similar story, but I think this is the Digi Times report, right? And our, our buddy, or we're talking about all the same stuff. So I guess we've already covered this.
0: Yeah, we kind of blended yeah. those two stories together.
1: Blended the two stories. Yeah. Okay. So when you're looking at the rundown, you will see we've already talked about that. So uh, not to be outdone by Logitech, who brought back the MX-518 to the delight of gamers everywhere. But Microsoft, who used to be pretty much synonymous with mice back in the day, when you bought a Microsoft mouse, and it came Intel mouse, you know it. Yeah, I'm I'm talking like way back when you bought a Microsoft mouse, and like the mouse driver for Windows was the Microsoft mouse driver on that three and a half inch floppy. But yes, the Intel mouse, like these, they've been around for a long, long time. Uh, well, they what, are almost impossible to kill. Is it uh, kind of the same thing as the MX-518? Is this like a souped-up version with a new
3: sensor, or what's going on here? Well, it is, and shiny butt. It, <laughs> there's glows emanates from the butt of the mouse because uh, they can't just have updated it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's the the, the Pixar to, uh, PMW 3389 that you see on a vast majority of mice all over the place, there is one very large problem with this. It's only being released to the Asian market at this point. Oh, well, yeah. you know
0: the the MX five eighteen was launched in China three months before it launched here too. Before so that's not necessarily a here. you know a, a death knell for it in this country, but
3: but yeah, like used one of these in the office and at home for a very, very long time. Uh, it's a very well-designed. It's, it's a shape that if you've used it before, you're going to recognize it in a millisecond. And, you know, as you would pointed out, using uh, Sebastian, using the old MX-518, that sensor really does, it doesn't stack up to the resolutions we run at nowadays. So seeing this jump up will be really nice.
1: I was going to say, we've seen that sensor. I think I had that exact same sensor in a HyperX mouse that I tested, and it's in a lot of stuff, and it it goes up pretty high. I cannot remember the actual resolution of the sensor offhand, but very fast if you want it to be. I would imagine this would be customizable because at its native uh, speed, that's a very, very fast sensor. Yeah,
3: 1,600 CPI apparently. Okay. Because 16, we can't just have is it DPI thousand or sixteen. Or sorry, sixteen thousand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sixteen hundred uh, would be very disappointing.
0: That. Yeah. I feel so. very overwhelmed because within oh, what two weeks now, the my gaming mouse during my formative years when I was building my first gaming PCs and gaming with friends was was Logitech's mice, culminating with the MX Five Eighteen. So that's back. Uh in fact, I just just got it in uh so we're we'll be looking at that shortly and my productivity mouse, when I was you know doing other you know non gaming for my my schoolwork and all that was a intel mouse. uh this style, this shape, so it's like whoa, you know
3: flashbacks
2: if you could turn back time if you could find if you could some find way, your way
3: what's the next Let's come lyric? back something so take back to all the, the mice person, that you
2: yeah, and you'll stay. If I could read your DPI. (laughs) Anyway.
0: I'd give it all to you.
2: Yeah. You know, I'm going to give to
1: Josh is the reins for the following story, which is all about TSMC. Mass production of enhanced 7 nanometer using EUV in March. Josh, so many questions. First of all, uh, what does TSMC stand for? Uh, what is EUV, what is March, go.
2: March is a date in month and year. Okay, anyway, TSMC, Tri- uh, Taiwanese okay. Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, EUV Extreme, Ultraviolet. Uh, so EUV has been the promise that we have been given for years and years. We have talked about EUV back in the early 2000s. This was the way to go forward because we've been using uh, uh, light to do photoresist on semiconductors. And unfortunately, light is both a particle and, and a wave. And so, <clears throat> when you get to a certain point, light would not be able to make kind of a straight line in something that you're doing, things would get wonky. And we're at that point. And so they have different kinds of, of, of tricks that they do to, you know, in terms of, of waveguides, guides, multi-patterning, to get the, to, to just get the geometries down in photoresist. So you have, you know, relatively straight lines, <clears throat> but you don't have, I mean, people have tried like electron scanning, and stuff, but because you know, as as you go lower and lower in geometry, you know, uh, um, measurements, light does crazy things. I mean, like I said, it's 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 a wave and, and a particle, and you just things get get whacked. And I know I'm kind of repeating to myself, but it's it's important because it is something that has held us back for quite a while, and it has caused great expenses. Uh, it used to be that you had an air gap uh, with in between the 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 photoresist material and the light source. And then we went to immersion technology and uh, they've done multi-patterning to be able to make these structures as accurate as possible at these really, really, really tiny geometries. Well, EV allows them to do some interesting things. Mainly, EUV by itself is not going to increase performance. It is not going to make transistor speed faster. What is going to do is it is going to cut down on the amount of um, oh gosh, what what you call it uh, steps that you have to do when you know if you have like you know double patterning and quad patterning stuff. You had a lot of different litho steps that are now compressed into one. And not only that, but the resulting structures are going to be more accurate to where you want them to be as compared to the older versions, which is a a blue laser, I think, that runs at a couple hundred watts. And, you know, it, it worked fine. But you know, they had to do a lot of different tricks to get things to work out like they would, because you know, it's just it's just just the properties of light. And so with EUV, you're not going to gain performance, but you could potentially gain better yields, better bins, and fewer steps in producing a wafer because You don't have to have as many photoresist steps because of of multi-masking and multi-patterning type stuff that they're they're doing. So uh, TSMC is introducing a partial kind of EUV step that I think it's in the two lower layers that they will utilize EUV. And again, it cuts down on the amount of times you have to process the wafers through uh, litho. And you have better results because you don't have multi-patterning type stuff. And uh, they're going to start this out with 7 nanometer. And, you know, temper your enthusiasm. It's not going to catch the world on fire. But it is a very integral step in getting better products out at lower uh, nanometer and greater densities. And this is the first step. Because... Each one of these stinking uh, EUV units, I think they, it's they're in the megawatt range of power consumption. It's it's insane, and uh, you know it's it's going to cost them a little bit more initially, just because the the power required to to run these things is nuts. And even though you're you're cutting out a couple of steps as compared to traditional litho, uh, you're still expending a lot of energy and you know it's it's going to be interesting to see how TSMC actually does this and how well they're able to produce it and and this is also why they're only doing a couple of basic layers versus doing the entire, you know, stack and in 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 photo with with EUV. So it's you know the physics behind it is is really amazing and it's interesting and uh you know I'm I'm probably had too many beers to really go into it but it's a good step and it's one thing that we're kind of looking forward to because you know until a year ago there was literally 2 3 dozen UV machines out there now they've they've produced quite a few more people are integrating those into their workflows and we're going to start seeing some of the first products out um early in fall late fall of this year
3: yes Hopefully November seventh. Yes. Well it is an N seven. Number
1: there's something about that. Oh so actually speaking of AMD, Jeremy. Don't don't go away. You have to tell us about the latest version of the adrenaline software.
3: I suppose that we could share that secret with our viewers if they really want. Now you're we, we've already spent last week I think it was going on at great length about drivers, uh, and we're back to it again, but th- there is something interesting about the 19.2.3. This will be the first Adrenaline that actually bundles in the iGPU in your Ryzen processor. So you don't have to go shopping around for a separate, separate driver update uh, from AMD. It is now going to be bundled in when you update, which you know, is really nice and offers AMD a way for those few brave people that have gone for a hybrid crossfire uh, and combining an APU and a GPU together. uh, Performance-wise, you are seeing a a bounce up, especially, again, when you're pairing it with a Ryzen mobile processor. So if you're into eSports and you're just carting around something that's using uh, one of those... Uh, Vega compute cores on top of the the AMD chip, you are actually going to see a noticeable boost along with it just being a lot more interesting. There is, however, a little caveat that we looked into, which is if you bought the i seven eighty seven hundred five you're still going to have to go to Intel for that graphics driver. Sorry about that. That would have been interesting to see it uh, incorporated as well. But uh, apparently, Cabulake G just didn't, you know, sell enough. Maybe that to, to convince them to do this. But overall, I mean, if if you are running a, a system that's got a Ryzen APU in it, j- download it. Like you've got absolutely no reason not to.
0: Well, I think with with Kaby Lake G, uh I I don't know. I don't know if it was much about the sales, but that product was always an odd marriage from the start. It always seemed Intel was protective of it. They were very careful with the way that they marketed and how they referred to the AMD components. Uh, you know, so There was sorry.
3: no Reese's peanut butter cup, right? right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> not surprising to see that it's, it's not going to have compatibility with, with this new revision.
1: But for anyone else, I mean, a nice little upgrade. I saw some of the uh, features and enhancements there and open or not open, but uh, what is it? Uh, why am I forgetting the the DirectX version of uh, ray tracing support? ML.
3: I'm completely.
0: The DirectX version of ray tracing? You mean like just DXR?
3: Yeah, DXR, not.
1: Yeah, there's something else I cannot remember right now. Maybe. Anyhow, let, let's move on. It's getting late. Sandisk they announced a one terabyte UHSI micro SDXC card using this new Western Digital Flash. And we could get into the standards that it conforms to, which are, I'm looking at the article by Tim here, C10, V30, U3, A2 speed classes. But what that translates into is up to 160 megabytes per second reads and 90 megabytes per second writes and not just really fast sequentials, we're talking IOPS of up to 4,000 reads and 2,000 writes. And they're saying you could support like an actual OS, like Android applications running off of the uh, micro SD rather than internal storage, which is somewhat notoriously slow on smartphones. Anyhow, go from like EMMC to this and uh, it's, it's compelling not just because it's it's going to be fast, but it's a one terabyte uh micro SD card that's fast. so I wonder what this means for the future of you know like digital imaging equipment like f- cameras and uh you know camcorders and that sort of thing making use of something this small that's this fast like this is a legitimate replacement for a professional level SD card
3: in a DSLR. Which may or may not freak out when it's offered an SD card this large. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And it's pricey though. That's the, the big thing. You know, So this, this technology is $200 for the 512 gig, 500 for the one terabyte. So that is going to be an initial limiting factor in application. Uh, also uh, image not to scale.
1: No? Okay. I guess it is a little <laughs> bit smaller than that. Anytime we've seen really fast flash in the history, the relatively short history of, of things using flash memory uh, for storage, it's, it's always been just exorbitantly expensive at launch, and then it drops fairly quickly, hopefully, when, when things scale up and they're producing this in big quantities. But nice to see something that fast and with that kind of capacity. Like, I have a digital audio player. I would love to put this thing into. It takes a micro SD uh, card one terabyte that fast. Think of the transfer speeds, all the uncompressed FLAC files of 1960s jazz music. I could put on that card. You just wouldn't believe. All right. Uh, our final story is something that I wrote up this morning uh, in my confusion and uh, growing rage about the state of USB from the lovely people at the USB Implementers Forum, who, I saw this last night before I went to bed, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, uh, USB... Are 3. you sure 2. the I 2. stands for Implementers? I
3: I don't know. What else might it stand uh,
1: for, Jeremy?
3: Well, after today, I'm thinking Idiots Fits. I I I read
1: what I could into this, and I wrote about it, but I would love to hear everybody else's perspective on this. Jeremy, what what do you th- What the hell is going on with this? First of all, what do these names mean, and I, how is this not making
3: the it so much worse than it already was? I, I never thought I would say this, but I'm starting to miss FireWire. It's it's so like at this point where we, you can't just say USB X. It's USB X point X Gen X. And apparently this was not frustrating enough for people. So now we're going to have three USB 3.2 specifications. So and it, they just rule off the tongue. USB 3.2 Gen 1. Uh, we're, we're sort of used to that. So 5 gigabits and also going to be known as super speed USB. I mean, you know, annoying, but okay. Then there's USB 3.2 Gen 2, which will be arriving when Gen 1 arrives, but will offer essentially double uh, the bandwidth, and so therefore is super speed USB 10 gigabits. But now they just had to outdo themselves. You you are now going to have to type out when you're asking somebody something about the USB 3.2 Gen 2 by 2. And how it's generation two times two, generation two X two. It's nice. I mean, 20 gigabits on a USB connection is beautiful, but do you really want to be super speed USB something? And now you're trusting the various manufacturers to actually live up to it. And as we all know, with the, the USB 3.1 cables, you can depend on every single one not to kill your machine or burst into flames. Absolutely. So this is not going to make this any worse whatsoever. Even to just, like, like at this point, you're already throwing your hands up in the air and screaming. Then they move on to say that, well, we don't actually want to make the physical connection a standard that that's going to be up to the, the, the people that sell the cables. So now you're going to have mixed connectors in amongst the three mixed new generations of USB that you already can't bloody well tell the difference between without digging into it and looking them up. And then because they had to, they're suggesting that maybe we should revisit the old USB names and maybe come up with some new nomenclature for previous generations of USBs. So now you don't even know what the hell it is that you plugged in on something you've owned for 10 years. It's, it's amazing. Utterly and completely amazing. And it's, it's just going to drive you absolutely nuts by the time that you get into it. Oh, and I forgot to mention, uh, just because it's USB 3.2 doesn't guarantee you can charge through it because there will be different voltage specifications or battery charging specifications, again, based on whoever it is that made the product you just bought. So this is universal and a standard in the same way that a dumpster fire is an efficient way of waste disposal. It, I I don't. Does anyone see anything good out of this?
2: No. No. Why Why wasn't Why didn't we go to USB four and USB five? Then you yes. could say, "Hey, that's a USB five C port," and you know exactly what it is. It's the fastest yeah. one with the the. You can turn it either way around. Instead, it's now. 3.2 Gen 1 Gen 2 by 2, then connectors. I don't
1: know why they're hanging on to USB 3 so hard. Like USB 2 was a big deal; it was high-speed USB for the first time, and then USB 3.0 came out, basically an uh, interface that was faster or had the potential to be faster than FireWire, and they've just it's just been how many years now with USB 3 and we had 3.1 and we had to remember which generation i can't ever get 2008
2: into this. i think 2008 yeah. 2009 was release of USB
1: 3.0 and then it's like oh it's 3.1 well which generation of 3.1 what's the actual speed of it and looking over what some of the kind of, of their physical connector
3: does it have and
1: yeah like the the key yeah. messages that they have like they're talking about messaging and packaging recommendations like What's the key message? Like one of them is allows system OEMs and peripheral developers adequate room for product versatility and market differentiation without the burden of carrying obsolete interfaces or losing compatibility. What does that mean?
0: Well, that, using that,
1: the same interface.
0: Right, that well that's the 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 trick of this. This is being driven by manufacturers who want to have who may have leg- legacy ports, you know, traditional USB 3. They want to have compatibility with this ecosystem. They want to be able to market to consumers that they have the latest standards. But it's it is so versatile. There are so many different things you can do with the different port types, the different power delivery uh, uh, capabilities, um, the the different speeds, and they've they've missed. I mean, you could you contrast this with what, what Wi-Fi um, has done, and Bluetooth too, to a certain extent, uh, with with going to more simplified. Uh, uh, generations, but they don't, manufacturers, they don't want that because then they'll say, you know, if, if there is a USB three or, or USB four, or USB five, they've already got a product in the market that's USB three. And even though it's maybe compatible, they can't market it as such, or they, they can't market it as being the new thing. So they they push for this kind of like inclusive, crazy no, uh, nomenclature, but in the end, it's going to, it's going to bite them because when consumers have issues with this stuff, which they're going to have and oh, yeah. they're either blowing up their devices because they have the wrong power or they're 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 not getting audio through their USB port like they thought they would or whatever it's the manufacturers who are going to p- face the burden of the support for trying to sort that out so it is it is unfortunate that they can't I mean even if they had said USB 3.1 3.2 3.3 or USB 3 gen 1 gen 2 gen 3 there, there were opportunities here to Developer to move to a path that made more sense, and they've abandoned it at each at each pass, and and now, God knows how we're going to explain this to normal people.
1: Isn't it like to the point now where wireless technology is easier to understand than a wired? Almost, yeah, it's getting there. Because I mean, you don't have to worry about charging. But AG is still faster than N, right? Yeah, it's, it's it's looking almost with, it's, as much I'm, of a mess i put the whole release at the bottom of of this post this morning i'm just like, looking over it like they, they they basically are are writing a white paper on why something has to change yet this is their solution they're, they're saying that it's critical for the manufacturers to distinguish between the gen one gen two gen three products they, they need to, it says they need to identify the performance capabilities of a product separately from the other protocols or physical characteristics in a product name and marketing materials. And please note the following: USB three point two only defines the transfer rate of a product. USB three point two is not a USB Type C, USB standard A, micro USB, or other USB cable or connector. It is not a power delivery or USB battery charging standard. Okay, why not available have- in all states? they they they're they're really really concerned about compliance with this and it is the manufacturers who make up this this body or whatever this this is this IF and it's it's ludicrous like they they're hanging on to USB 3 they don't have they have a, a mix a wide mix of connectors out there it it starts to make something like Apple's lightning connector almost makes sense, even though most people would have liked to see that go to USB Type C. They can just put lightning on things and it, oh, it's lightning. Like it has a name, it's a brand, it has a particular look to it. It's a certain size, it has certain capabilities. And that makes sense. Just like Firewire made sense, like Firewire 400, <laughs> right in the name, up to 400 megabits per second, right? And then Firewire 800 came out, completely different connector. It was a bigger connector, faster speed, 800 in the name. And this just, we've had the same connector, well, the the primary connector, the legacy connector now, I guess, huh. for many, many years, different speed ratings. At one point, it was going to be like the color was going was gonna to tell you, like you could look in like the blue super speed, like the SS logo. Well, not that SS logo, but a super speed logo mm-hmm. on the side of your device, like your laptop, would mean, oh, that's a USB 3 port. Mm-hmm. But then we started getting like, it said super speed, but it's a different generation, so it's a different actual throughput, and the they couldn't use blue anymore because that was 3.0. So then they went back to black, which was like high speed USB, like. None of this makes any sense. You have to consult spec sheets to even figure out what's in the device that you have, what its capabilities are. Like, am I limited by what I'm plugging in, or is it the interface? And it's, they should have just gone. Does this one work with
2: Thunderbolt?
1: Yeah. And that's another can of worms. But why did USB 3.0 have to have the same connector as Thunderbolt? And, I mean, it's nice. Well, because originally that was a damn good idea.
3: Then they kind of went the opposite way.
1: USB Type-C should have just been USB 4.0. I don't know why it wasn't. I don't, I don't think that the average consumer knows what Type-C means. Uh, somebody who goes into Best Buy looking for a flash drive or an external hard drive for their laptop – uh they're having to have that kind of stuff explained to them by the salesperson, like, oh well that that MacBook only has one port on the side and you need something called a USB type C drive to connect to it. But first you're gonna need a dongle to actually make you know, we won't get to that, but it's it's Wrap a mess. It it, Josh is unhappy. I'm unhappy. <laughs> you know what? I think we've reached the end. So if anybody has any picks oh I, I like this speak now uh, me pick for, for me but yeah jim jim start us off please all right Take so a- my
0: my pick is uh it's a humble bundle of star trek comic books uh from idw uh, i guess who's the primary publisher of those books now uh now i was never into comics as a kid it just wasn't something i i didn't have any friends who were into it i just never got into it uh but then i remember right before the the launch of the jj abrams star trek universe so 2009 there was a prequel graphic novel slash comic that came out uh, called Countdown. It was a series of them, four of them, I think, before the movie. And I read those, and I really liked them. And and, and that was kind of my my first real jump into comics. And so I've read a few, you know, here and there uh, since then. And I noticed this launched today. It's a it's a, co- a bundle of comics. They're distributed in PDF or in um, I forget the file format. Cc, ccd or ccr. There's a there's a, a file format for a comic I'm book in the reader. the CCR CCR. So you, you get your choice. Yeah, it makes uh, me think of music. Yeah, and uh, and and there's a bunch of them here, and they're they're all different, like Prime Universe, uh, Next Generation stuff, original series stuff, JJ Abrams series stuff, um, Star Trek Discovery. You know, there's just a whole bunch here. Fifteen dollars get you all of them, and uh, I I just got it today, so I haven't had a chance to to really read them all, but uh, there's you know looks like a good. A good mix for fifteen bucks. That's a lot of uh, a lot of Star
2: Trek comics. Star Trek and Green Lantern. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no. there's some it's
3: the Star Trek versus Transformers. No. You yeah, Star with. Trek. No. Transformers. That is amazing. Oh. I read that a long time ago.
0: Yeah, some classic crossover series here.
1: Um, good stuff. It hey, looks sitting on the edge of forever in comic book form. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yep, I may have to buy this. Fifteen dollars for Harlan everything Allison. is. You know, curl up with an iPad and just thumb through comic books for hours and hours and hours. I believe Jeremy... No plastic
3: protector required. So sure. the, the least worst deal that I have seen on a Canadian RX270, so RTX 2070. So if you're looking to trace some rays at 1080p... This is a great card to do it. It's it's about the only card you're going to do it on because the the ten six or the twenty sixty will probably disappoint you, and the twenty eighty w- is overpowered. But honestly, at six hundred and forty bucks uh, after the mail in rebate, which is not the most amazing thing, but still, that's well under a uh, hundred. It's more than a hundred dollars less than I've seen most specials on, and Mike's computers is is pretty close, and they ship relatively cheaply and even better if you can find it for cheaper they will beat it and they do actually do that having bought from them before so if you're up here in Canada and you are looking for a 2070 grab it because there ain't that many left
1: that, I just did the calculation and 659.99 Canadian equals currently 501 US dollars 501.76 and 76 cents. That's right at the msrp here 499 for the 2070s so yeah you only just now are getting cards at msrp that's sad
3: free healthcare doesn't come cheap oh, it's okay
1: well you have to throw that out there don't you just rub it in
3: uh josh do you have i can plan? i got ointment for free just a little while ago <laughs> i don't want to hear josh.
2: about it no <laughs> more ointment and rashes what Hmm. as for me I've only been talking about this for a while I've only been playing the original for now damn near four years but Dirt Rally 2.0 is out it's not perfect but it's still really good improved graphics, improved audio improved physics the only thing they kind of screwed up on in the release is their force feedback this was something that was initially oh. fixed and extended upon in the original Dirt Rally one about two months after its early access release. And uh as you, you know, if you're you know a Rally sim fan, uh Dirt Rally really kind of it it threw a wrench in the gears of everything in terms of, of, of racing sims. It had a level of realism that hadn 't been seen. It was you know called what the dark souls of of rally Sims because it was just really hard to master it was It was pretty accurate. It gave you an idea of what a lot of these races actually went through, i mean not in actuality because going you know through forests at one hundred and forty miles an hour is is a totally different experience than sitting in Your office chair and and playing a game but uh this improves upon everything you have more areas to go to you have more rally cross tracks you've you've got really good graphics good sound uh it's you know it's it's a brand new title so it's it's pricey but uh you know there's a lot of really good stuff in there and a lot of content and it's beautiful and it's fun to play. And once they figure out the force feedback stuff, it's going to be fantastic. So expect probably a fix for that in a month, but until then, you can still play it and, you know, you just got to kind of read up on how to set up your, your wheel. Um, if you're playing with a you know keyboard or a you know Xbox-type controller, your experience is, is going to be fine regardless, because you know it's just not a wheel it's not a force feedback wheel you get a lot more information from those <clears throat> and it's a lot more fun but if you're just going to use a controller then just get it now and it's going to be great for you but you know control handling everything it's spot on looks great it's a lot of fun uh they've extended out uh just you know how you actually play the game as compared to Dirt Rally 1 there's there's you know an, an actual you know start to kind of finish in the main campaign I guess you'd call it, but yeah it's uh, you know hours and hours of fun looks great it's a lot of fun get it we'll eventually get a league going for it
0: uh, real quick because uh, I think Sebastian you don't have a pick right
2: I don't have a pick
0: okay so just uh, in place of your pick uh, to answer some questions that have been in the chat for a few weeks um regarding uh common question is what happened to the twitch stream we used to s- stream live to youtube and twitch the issue with the twitch stream is we're not in that studio anymore that studio had fiber internet with real good upload bandwidth uh i'm now hosting this and doing the production myself here out of my house where the only internet connection available to me is cable with a max bandwidth uh upload of 20 megabits which is never actually that high it usually is like 10 to 12 or so and so uh to host remotely to all these guys and to then stream to YouTube, I don't, We the testing I've done has shown that I don't think I could accommodate streaming to both. Now there are some services where you stream to like a third party and then that third party streams out to the various platforms. We can look at that. And I'm also seeing in the chat here, some folks saying that Twitch will accept an HEVC input stream. So if I can look at, I'll, I didn't know that, if I'll look at that some more, if I could, if that does, if that's true, we could upload a significantly lower bitrate file to Twitch or stream. And then uh, that might be an option too. So that's why we haven't done that. And then also uh, in regards to Alex, who was the guy who ran the production, uh, he, he was never full-time at PC Pur. He, he was a very successful IT guy. He had his own career going. He, he kind of uh, did that for us uh, as a favor, basically, part-time. Um, and he decided with all the changes at the end of the year that he was going to leave because he got very busy at his day job. So that's why he's not here. Also, with us not having a central studio anymore, it would be a little awkward... To have him, you know, he come over to my house and sit in my basement with me and run us run the stream. I mean, I love the guy. I would love to have him over, but that would be a little weird. Uh, so that's what happened there. Uh, so there are a lot of changes happening. I know some people still don't, you know, they, they, they've they're joining us uh, in between weeks. They don't hear all the developments, but we are still working on perfecting this new setup. So I will take a look at getting to Twitch again, uh, in one way or another. But we may. It may not be possible for our current setup.
1: We could always stream old games on Twitch. Yeah, we I can still stream
0: that. content to Twitch, like as specials, yeah. but simulcast streaming to both, I just don't uh, know. I
3: don't have a low-cut enough V-neck for that, though.
0: <laughs> That's all right. We'll get you a green screen, have a floating head for you, cut you out.
2: Super. Anyway...
0: It up. All right, Josh is cranking.
2: Yeah, yeah, falling down cranky. Yeah, he's not cranking I'm just he's kind of lippy lately. Josh, would you like to sign us off? This has been the PC Perspective Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you guys watching us. And for this is what episode number five thirty four. Five thirty four. That is a lot of episodes. Thanks five. for watching.
0: 34. Oh, somebody found the effects presets on his mixer. Yep,
2: there's the button. There's the button. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, good
3: night.